0: Mr. Goldsmith, if you please.
1: Welcome to the Goldsmith Odyssey, our chronological journey through the filmography of composer Jerry Goldsmith. I'm Yvar. I'm Clark. And I'm Jens.
2: Today, the Goldsmith Odyssey gets classy with an adaptation of a book trilogy that was once thought of as one of the greats in the English literary canon, Studs Lonegan by James T. Farrell. I'm sure we all, of course, remember reading Studs Lonegan in English Lit class as it's been a mainstay of the curriculum pretty much since its release.
3: Are you being sarcastic? <laughs> I may have fallen asleep during that class, I have to confess. Nobody I know has ever
2: read Stuts Lonigan, and I certainly didn't get to since I was forced to read Jurich Becker and Bertolt Brecht in school.
1: <laughs> I think it's probably been a while since it was in English lit classes, but for a time this was considered an enduring literary classic. As recently as 1998, two decades ago, The Modern Library ranked that Studs-Lonigan trilogy as 29th on its list of the 100 best English language novels of the century.
2: It's interesting, Yavar, that it's on that list because I was reading Samuel J. Friedman's New York Times review on the 50th anniversary of Studs, and uh, that review talked about how Studs had fallen completely out of favor in the literary canon, and that was in the mid-80s. That was like 84, 85.
1: Probably like some 85-year-old literary critic who was compiling that list in nineteen ninety eight, who knows?
3: It was the Modern Library editorial board. I think it was about ten different people, including uh Gore Vidal, was on the board that selected that. Alright. I figured it was probably just Studs Turkle <laughs> who put it on the list, since he's named
2: after the protagonist.
3: Right. Yeah, that's it was an interesting bit of trivia that he was named after Studs and I wonder how he felt about that.
2: I'm hoping that his parents didn't name him Studs because they wanted him to take after Studs Lonigan, because that seems like a bad thing to do to your child.
3: Right, our son should wander through life aimlessly, frustrated at every turn. Let's name him after Studs Lonigan.
1: Did he get named after the protagonist, or did he adopt that nickname? Yeah, I guess that makes a lot more
3: sense, Yavar.
1: Oh, maybe he was a more admirable character in the book.
3: That does not seem to be the case based on the descriptions I've read. But again, none of us have read it, so we're all, you know, in speculative mode, more or less.
1: The stuff I read made it sound like it was more a fall from grace. Well, not, I don't know about grace, but he was like a good-hearted character. Yavar,
2: I will dispute that assertion that the Studs Lonigan of the book is more likable than the Studs Lonigan of the movie. You've read some of the book? No, but I'm going to quote that Samuel J. Friedman review that we were just talking about briefly.
1: Okay, well, that's one person's opinion. I mean, that's not the same as reading it ourselves to judge.
2: <laughs> this is not an opinion <laughs> excerpt. This is a here's what happens in the book excerpt. Oh, okay. The energy and malevolence of Studs's 58th street gang is still the combustible chemistry of Chicago. In the trilogy, Studs and his friends utter an encyclopedia of racial and ethnic invectives. He's white means he's okay. Studs and his father, Patrick, curse the blacks and Jews they see encroaching on their neighborhood. The nearby home purchased by a black banker is bombed. Anti-Semitism takes on an epic scope in the football game in which Studs and his mates maim Jewboy Schwartz, the star of the opposing team.
3: And, you know, talking about that side of things, the the movie completely shies away from all of that more kind of racially inflammatory content, which I suppose isn't that surprising for a film made in 1960. You wouldn't get that idea at all from watching the film.
1: Yeah, they're depicted as horrible enough guys anyway, I think. But I just wanted to add to what Yen said that the books start with studs at a young age, as I understand it. So it would have been before they beat up this jewish guy or you know he got fully in with his father on all this stuff possibly you know i'm just saying it's possible that that description fits the the later on character we
2: see him growing into that person whereas the movie adapts the middle chapter of the series
3: yeah and it, it does technically kind of take it close to the where the books eventually go near the but yeah pretty much books two and three from what i gather is what this is largely adapting.
2: The thing of this is that this was the Great Depression, and Farrell was a Trotskyist and a member of the Socialist Workers' Party. So these books were meant as an indictment of capitalism and of American society of the time. Right. So that's why he wrote them in this gritty, realistic style, and uh, yeah, apparently, for the time, extremely shocking. Um, in fact, from um, what I've read, the first book, Young Lonegan was initially published in a rapper. Identifying it as a clinical document for a sociological and psychological study.
1: Yeah, what a way to market your novel! That's the way that you
2: marketed your sensationalist novel back then, and got away with it. There you go. Yeah, you know it's funny. I think director Irvin Lerner might have gotten along with Farrell politically. The
1: rumor is, or or at least uh, I don't know if it was, it was a rumor. I think he was actually. I think he was actually accused, just perhaps not convicted. I mean, he was caught in, like, a embarrassing situation.
2: He was caught in Berkeley attempting to photograph the cyclotron at the University of Berkeley, which was part of the Manhattan Project at the time.
3: Mm-hmm. And allegedly doing so on behalf of the Soviets.
2: It's funny, so many people were blacklisted, but Lerner...
1: Somehow he went on to have a successful career, and, you know, Martin Scorsese was a big admirer, I think,
3: and... Well, yeah, he edited uh, a couple hey, of... Yeah, as an
1: editor, as an editor, not a director.
3: This is yet another interesting thing, though, that, you know, uh, for all of the perhaps sympathies these individuals might share philosophically, none of that really makes it into the movie either. It certainly, at least if it is an indictment of capitalism, it passed me by.
2: I can't imagine that Farrell would have approved of Lerner's movie, because the movie is much more of a traditional cautionary tale.
3: But perhaps in fairness to Lerner, it may not have started out that way uh, because indications are this was originally a much longer film and perhaps uh, they were aiming for more of a cinematic epic early on that would do at least a bit more justice to the source material
2: yeah apparently the original cut was two hours and 45 minutes long and what we end up with is a 95 minute movie which is extremely choppy and definitely in places disjointed.
3: And I mean, feels very much like a movie that whole sections have just been lopped out of.
1: It's worth noting that Goldsmith got this assignment. This was his follow-up assignment with the director of City of Fear. We, I don't think we mentioned that about Lerner.
3: Yeah, a director making a return to the Goldsmith Odyssey, and uh, all of us, I believe, were fairly mixed on City of Fear. And I think it's fair to go ahead and say that all of us are pretty mixed on Studs Lonigan too. But I do think this is a more ambitious picture in a lot of ways and a more interesting film, if not a better one. Yeah.
2: Clark, how about one of those plot synopses that you do so well?
3: I have just pulled one out of the oven here and will deliver it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the film examines a decade in the life of William Studs Lonigan played by Christopher Knight, a young Irish-American who lives in Chicago. Stud struggles to find a sense of purpose in life, drifting in and out of assorted jobs and romantic relationships while yearning for an elusive sense of freedom. Now, the constants in his life are his fretful, overbearing parents, played by Dick Foran and Catherine Squire, his similarly aimless pals Kinney, Weary, and Pauly, played by Frank Gorshin, Jack Nicholson, and Robert Casper, respectively, and his mostly unrequited affection for a young woman named Lucy Scanlon, played by Venetia Stevenson. As Studs grows older, personal tragedies begin to accumulate, and the need to find some sort of direction becomes more urgent. So the question is, will our hero ever find his way? It's a good question. He'll find
1: his way to the pool hall.
3: Yeah, we'll we'll get there. But it's an unusually structured movie. It almost feels more like a European film. More than a Hollywood film at the time, in the way it's structured, it more as a series of vignettes in the life of this aimless young man that uh, doesn't really follow your typical kind of start, middle, finish arc. We were talking a few days ago, and I think Yin aptly described it as stuff happens, which is basically the story of Studs Lonegan.
2: Yeah. Before we get to the series of events, though, we start the film panning across a series of paintings of desolate, foggy Chicago streets.
1: I found them somewhat intriguing, so I looked up the designer of the titles, William Hertz, who turned out to be an animation director who did a lot of Rocky and Bullwinkle and Dudley Do-Right in the 60s. And his final credit was co-directing the 1989 animated feature Little Nemo, Adventures in Slumberland. I don't know if either of you have seen oh, that. I
2: really, yeah, yeah, I like that one.
1: But yeah, he's got a touch, I guess, with images. So even if it was low budget, I thought it was worth remarking on and giving him a shout out. Like it, it made me expect a movie with more substance to it than we ended up getting.
2: Again, a great example of Learner picking great collaborators. I was fascinated to learn that Haxel Wexler was the cinematographer on this, you know, director of Medium Cool. People will know him for that. But, you know, he was one of the great cinematographers. Some standout
3: individual contributions on several levels
2: in this movie. It really shows. I mean, Lerner knew how to pick his team, which is the the strength of City of Fear as well. I think City of Fear had great cinematography and very clever editing. And Stas Lonergan is very much the same way. That is the strength of these... uh, Learner Pictures, I think.
1: Making the most of his resources.
2: But I think a big factor in your expectation that there's going to be something classy the music. is Goldsmith's main title, yeah. yeah.
1: Of course. Yeah.
2: He really manages to encapsulate Studs Lonigan as a character, I think the way we're meant to see him, rather than the way that we actually see him in the film, mm-hmm. as this lonely searcher, striving for meaning, and it's got this wavering, irresolute quality, an air of tragedy about it, it's carrying his innocent qualities in the strings. But then the, uh, when the trumpet comes in, that seems to represent more his rowdy nature or the temptation that drives him.
1: And there's such a feeling of melancholy in it that together with the harmonica, it reminds me so strongly of The Big Tall Wish, of course. And I was struck that, you know, similarly, that was a story about uh, down-on-his-luck character you know, living in a, not a particularly nice neighborhood. And somehow the harmonica, we usually think of it as being kind of a folksy American instrument, and we recently heard it used that way in Gunsmoke. And that was
2: jovial and uplifting. Lighthearted. Lighthearted. And something like Tomorrow, set in roughly the same time period as Lonigan*. it was so pastoral and rural and quality.
1: Mm-hmm. But here it's just used completely differently and it's mournful and uh, desolate and you know it has that wandery feeling to it without a strong sense of purpose it feels a little lost i think is what i'm looking for it's pretty amazing
2: how versatile i guess it's not that surprising considering the big tall wish did the same thing
3: yeah
1: big tall wish is a clear precursor to this i think
3: he loved that harmonica during this era and he makes a really good case for its flexibility as you say
1: you know, the harmonica can always get a little more love because it feels like one of those instruments that so many people just hate, like bagpipes or something. And oh no, if somebody really opens their heart to his varied use of it, I'm sure something in there will appeal to them.
3: Harmonica is, I, I think, way more accessible and appealing than say bagpipes or even accordion or something like that i don't think it's that obnoxious an instrument unless it wants to be
1: but people i I mean that may just be you because i have similar reactions i've seen on the boards and stuff where people are like oh god that has harmonica in it i can't deal with that you know similar to the accordion or the bagpipes
2: i'm always a little saddened by that and i
1: don't understand it Mm it's the american equivalent what the harmonica is the american bagpipe i mean (laughs) in terms of there's like a specialty instrument that's strongly associated with the region that gets on people's nerves and all of these happen to be wind instruments too a lot of people like bagpipes a lot of people hate them and the same can be true of accordions or harmonicas i think
3: yeah and the, the harmonica is interesting in this cue and effective but for me the main title really takes off once you get close to the halfway point and the trumpet and strings pick up the melody. Like right there, that's the moment where I'm like, okay, this is classic Jerry Goldsmith right here.
1: The interesting thing about that part for me is that the strings kind of present the melody straightforwardly while the trumpet extends it and elaborates on it. I think it carries that dichotomy you talked about earlier, Jens, about uh, representing two sides of him possibly
3: this theme has a wonderfully kind of noirish quality too if if you were just to play this piece of music for me without telling me what it was from i would guess it was from some kind of film noir made around this era the rest of the score you know a lot of other parts of it go in different directions but this theme does have that particular quality and i think that fits for who studs is as a character and for the journey that he's going on, because he is the doomed protagonist, in a sense, and I think that works for him. (laughs) ¶¶ Those first four notes kept nagging at me. It's like Justine by
1: way of the Chinatown instrumentation, maybe?
3: Da-dee-da-da, da
1: dee, da, 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 de, da da it goes somewhere else. But those opening four notes and the way they're played on strings is, like, identical to Justine. score for me whenever i listen to it like i'll go away from it and i'll start humming the theme in my head and half the time it'll turn into the theme from Justine and there are a couple times later in the score where it'll like get a rhythm going and then play that theme in strings over it in a very similar fashion to how he does it with the theme for Justine multiple times in that score Justine is the missing link between Studs Lonegan and the mummy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we can insert the uh, Charlie Day conspiracy theory gif here as we chart our uh, wild connections. Right, in our audio podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: with the main credits out of the way, the movie then sets about establishing Studs' as buddies and their regular hangout, the pool hall. This is a pretty efficient setup of Studs as a cool character. You know, when you've got Jack Nicholson wearing an Irish flat cap backwards, smoking a cigarette, and playing pool, assuring the hot dames that the fun doesn't really start until Studs gets there, you know right away how these characters feel about Studs. Yep. Nicholson's like one of the best hype men that you could have.
1: (laughs) If Jack Nicholson thinks you're cool.
3: This movie really does the hype man thing for Studs in general really well, because there are several people who are going, oh, Studs is going to be here in a minute. Just wait, Studs is coming, Studs is coming. Just, just to get us all excited.
1: And then he shows up and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> 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 Happy New Year! Oh, this is the guy we were waiting for?
2: I don't know, Yavar, Studs is such hot stuff. He's got a de facto date lined up who seems to be chomping at the bits. Oh, boy. Despite Nicholson telling her in no small terms that Studs is openly courting another woman right this moment.
1: Well, they're just <laughs> companions for a night on the town.
2: Well, but I, I mean, I figure
1: it's because... Studs looks like a cross between
2: Robert Stack and Robert Pattinson. That
1: is his one asset,
2: and it serves him well.
1: uh his face looks okay until he smiles. <laughs> That's the Robert
2: Stack part of the face, I think. Ouch, That's the Robert Stack: for
1: Robert Stack. That's so me. Uh, I, I, well, I don't know. They tried to make this actor Christopher Knight a thing, I guess, with this movie, and it didn't really take because he only has a single acting credit after this on a film anyway.
3: Christopher Knight's performance is really the central failing of this film in a lot of ways because he either overplays everything or he completely fails to capture whatever complicated emotion the film is asking him to capture. In almost every single scene, and that's a pretty significant problem for a movie called Studs Lonigan.
2: Right, in retrospect, you might say maybe Nicholson would have been a better pick.
3: Somebody with more charisma. (laughs) You know, nobody could have known that Nicholson was going to be, you know, Jack Nicholson, but it is amazing, I have to say, watching Nicholson here, what a fully formed screen presence He is like, it's just a few seconds and you see Jack Nicholson being himself and you're like, oh yeah, that's Jack. You know, you've seen him in so many movies and how assured that presence is right off the bat. I know it would take him a few years to like really break out, but yeah, he's there right there from the beginning.
1: Every time he utters a line, he commands attention and steals it a little bit. It's worth look. Yeah, critics at the time didn't apparently pick up on that.
2: There wasn't really anything said about Nicholson's performances in the reviews of the day.
3: Yeah, you'd see, you know, Frank Gorshin get a shout out or some of the other actors, but Nicholson didn't get a lot of attention. Granted, you know, we're noticing him now because he's the biggest star in the movie, but I do think he really does handle his little part quite well.
2: Yeah, Gorshin's really good too. But isn't it weird that Studs is meant to be 16 at the beginning of this story, and he and his friends just look like, the, you know, you could make a, a movie about them being the young mobsters or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I did not get at all that he was supposed to be still in high school. None of his friends or he felt like they were high school age. We don't see him in school or anything like that. But we
2: do see him slow dance with his high school sweetheart, Lucy, at the 1920s New Year's party. And that is also where we get some source music. Based on the Studs Lonegan theme, so clearly Goldsmith.
1: It starts out with some other dance music, but it kind of morphs into a, a semi-source treatment of the theme. This is also where we're,
2: for the first time, treated to Studs' trademark voiceover narration.
0: When I'm with Lucy, I feel I could run a hundred yards for a touchdown. I could I could hit a homer with the bases loaded. I could high jump clear over the moon.
4: It's way past midnight. I promised Mother I'd be home early.
0: I... I don't understand, Lucy. Does your mother think you're Cinderella?
4: There'll be other nights. Will there, Lucy? Bill, please take me home.
0: One more. Just one more dance.
4: This was our last dance.
0: Hey, Lucy, don't keep running away. It's a new year, ain't it? Lucy! Lucy! 1920. Can't ever be 1919 again. Not in a hundred million years. So what? Where are you going in 1920, studs? What are you going to do?
3: That was the first real surprise for me watching this movie. That there was there's there's not much music in this film that isn't on the album, but this is one of the most significant and probably the most interesting piece in the movie that didn't make it on the album. Hearing that main theme kind of turn to this little dance thing, I think it works pretty well for what the score is trying to do as a whole. Too, you know, giving that kind of slightly tragic sense of melancholy even to this jovial moment where Studs doesn't yet know that things are going to go badly for him in his life.
2: So, Studs is frustrated with his uptight girlfriend, and with the fact that he doesn't know what to do with his life, so he decides to let his gang of friends and his date for the evening wait just a little bit longer. His other date for the evening, I should say. Because first he must get his fix of life advice and comfort from his former teacher,
1: Miss Julia Miller.
3: I guess she's just on the way. This strikes me as more of a convenient literary device here than a convincing slice of real life i don't imagine many high school students dropping by to get life advice from their teacher in the middle of this particular moment but studs does because the movie needs him to and we need to establish this relationship early on and the scene is a little bit strange too because we get the first inclination that maybe he has a little bit of a thing for his teacher too he delivers a very kind of leering and creepy Compliment of her figure during their conversation, which makes her uncomfortable.
1: But she's also not entirely discouraging because she's like, well, everyone likes to receive compliments.
3: When he feels insecure about what he said and feels like he's crossed a line, she reassures him at that point.
2: I will just say really quickly that this is my favorite performance in the movie. Yes. And Helen Westcott is an actress that I like, that folks probably know from The Gunfighter. Yeah, she was really good in The Gunfighter. Mm -hmm. And I recognize her from a great early Perry Mason episode that I saw recently, The Case of the Haunted Husband, Mm -hmm. in which she was quite good. And she gives, I think, a really nice, conflicted performance as Miss Miller. She feels that life has passed her by. But if life is so
0: beautiful, what are you doing sitting here alone on New Year's Eve? (sighs)
4: I missed out, William. I missed out.
1: It's just three words, but she delivers it in a way that, you know, really makes her a tragic character you kind of feel for.
3: Yeah, I agree. Her performance is one of the more kind of nuanced things in this movie that tends to play things pretty broad. You know, characters tend to play pretty brash one note types in uh, many different corners of this film. But she does bring some dimension to this little character.
1: I also want to uh, say that women who play classical music are much more attractive to me. And uh, she's always playing classical music.
3: So while Studs is leering at her, you're gazing at her record player (laughs) and collection.
1: You kind of wonder, like, why is she all alone? She's really pretty. She's intelligent. She's a teacher. And she's got taste.
2: But he's not ready to make his move yet. So he's got to let her simmer a little bit in that sexual tension.
1: Now he's off to finally
2: join his buddies and their girls.
1: He just appears at their little gathering
3: at the pool hall or whatever.
2: Right, and then we immediately flash forward to, you know, much deeper
3: into the night, uh, a night of drunken debauchery. Yeah, this is a pretty frantic little party scene that honestly feels a little bit more oppressive than celebratory in the way it's filmed. It's got uh, an air of excess and menace to it, I think.
2: All the party scenes in this movie make me think of, in Julie Tamer's Titus,
1: when we, when we have the long pan across the orgy scene. I mean, it's probably the closest you could get for 1960.
3: There's kind of something that some of those biblical epics like Sodom and Gomorrah at the time did, where they just wildly suggest debauchery in their G-rated way, you know. There's like all this wild physical movement without actually showing anything happening but you get the impression that this is supposed to be a raunchy party without any real raunchiness on screen
1: but the music is kind of raunchy and raucous that's a big part of the impression that clark
2: mentions i think is this cue entitled a new year the beginning of which we opened the podcast with but speaking of frantic that is downright exhausting party jazz there's a desperation to it a hurriedness, as if we've got to get as much distraction and pleasure as humanly possible <laughs> while we still can, before the inevitable crash.
1: This new jazz theme for, I guess, Studs' band of friends has a little bit, this, I'm, I'm taking this from the liner notes, but I've listened to Kurt Weil, and this sounds like it's got some Kurt Weil influence in terms of the jazz style. Do you want to give credit to Jeff Bond's liner notes? I think I've seen that elsewhere in reviews and stuff, too, so I don't know that the idea originated with him. But his liner notes do, I think, mention Vile, and uh, he calls this the lads theme, I think. I think of
3: them as Studs' Buds has kind of a ring to me.
1: Studs' Buds? (laughs) The bro theme.
3: It's this dynamic uh, seven-note motif that we'll hear used in quite a few different ways over the course of this score.
1: The neat thing is it's got some melodic turns in it that are a little bit reminiscent of the Studs theme. At certain points, we'll we'll bring it up later, but at certain points, the two themes can actually work in counterpoint together in an effective way. So you can musically represent Studs surrounded by his pals who are a bad influence on him.
3: Yeah, and here, even though those themes are separated, we do have a brief emergence of the studs theme during a bit at this party that's a little bit more intimate. We see him, you know, talking to a girl at the party, and we go back to his theme briefly before moving back to the wilder, more energetic jazz material.
1: Yeah, musically, it's illustrating a contrast between him and his friends, it feels like, because he's just kind of lying back and moping. (laughs) But that's just
2: the start of the cue. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more to it. As Studs stumbles home from the party, we get to the next section of it, which is Goldsmith bringing in these wonderfully trilly woodwinds, along with malted wood percussion, which together seem to represent Studs' drunken exuberance. And then we get that first taste of Johnny Williams on piano, doing kind of a down-the-scale jazz riff that slows down until it comes to a full stop, underscoring Studs steadying himself and getting his bearings
5: you
1: For any of our listeners who don't know, that Johnny Williams is, in fact, John Williams, the film composer that had not quite had his career in full swing at this point as a composer, and so he was freelancing as a jazz pianist.
3: He was kind of, I guess you could say, in a pretty similar place to Goldsmith at this point in terms of his career success, but he also had that piano talent and put it to good use.
1: I think Goldsmith had a lot more hours of actual film scoring under his belt at this point.
3: Sure, but I mean, in, in terms of them both being, you know, up-and-coming Hollywood composers who were starting to get their first big assignments. Sure. Right, and they're both doing the TV
2: stuff right. and the low-budget film, the B-movie stuff. Mm-hmm. Williams' own magnum opus, Daddy-O. <laughs> so yeah, John Williams, absolutely on fire. In this score, I mean, we know that he played on City of Fear, and we think that he played on Black Patch, but this is the standout Williams piano performance, as far as I'm concerned, of all the. I mean, there's a lot for him to do in the score.
1: <laughs> Williams wasn't only collaborating with Jerry Goldsmith at this point; he was also playing for several other more established
3: Hollywood film composers at the time as a solo pianist. Even if this weren't John Williams, if you had no idea who it was, you know, if it's Joe Q. Nobody you would still, listening to these piano parts, be like, man, who is that? That's really cool. Because they are a highlight every time they appear. And this is just a little taste, as you say, in this first cue. But he's really going to get a shine shortly here. Once we're done with the jazzy section of this cue, there's still more in a new year as we move into something more tender. And at the start of this more tender section, there's something really interesting. Goldsmith delivers this very sweet, almost unrecognizable take on that opening seven note motif that's uh, pretty cool you know it took me a couple of listens before i was like oh right that's that because it is so different
1: yep it opens up with like a subdued gentle version of what jeff bond calls the lads theme on clarinet with strings and then after that jeff bond doesn't mention this but after that there's a major key soft development of studs's theme
2: He's just declared his undying love for her, yelling at her at the window. Doing his
3: Romeo and Juliet thing.
1: It's pretty unique in the score sounding this happy or hopeful. It's put in a major key and it follows that softer version
3: of the lads theme. Yeah, it sounds like a tender romantic cue. Well, at the
1: end, I think there's a new melody.
3: Yes, towards the end. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I thought that was maybe a hint of a love theme or something. That's when he's writing Studs Loves Lucy on the lamppost. So now we abruptly transition to Studs at home getting chewed out by his father and uh, excused by his mother.
3: Right. The dynamic in their house is the dad does all the yelling and occasionally maybe a little smacking around and this whole sort of thing. And the mother frets and worries about the father being too rough and too abusive, perhaps. I think she's just trying to mellow him more than she is, you know, approving of all the stuff that Studs does.
1: You want to give Studs a kick in the pants several times during this
3: movie. I do, but, you know, I don't want his dad to, so. <laughs> okay.
1: I did. <laughs> but we do get more voiceover after this scene where he's musing about whether he was switched at birth and, you know, in his self-pity. Now, is this
2: a track? There's like a little bit of music under this voiceover, which crossfades into what we know as a game of pool, which is the next big cue.
1: It didn't stand out to me as being from a queue that's on the album, so I wonder if somehow just the opening of this cue was snipped whenever the tapes were preserved.
3: Yeah, I can't tell if it's supposed to be an actual part of a game of pool that just got cut from albums or whatever, or if it is its own separate thing that was recorded or tracked in from somewhere else. I don't think it's tracked in, but I'm not 100% sure on that.
1: The fact that it flows into a game of pool really seamlessly makes me think it was actually written for this scene. But I could be wrong. Um, it may be tracked in, and it's just not obvious. But it's, it's about 15 seconds of music that's not on the album cue, a game of pool. So what follows is a lengthy sequence of studs and
2: his gang alternately playing pool and ogling women who pass by the pool hall. This is where Jerry switches between more avant-garde, kind of staccato-like jazz for inside the pool hall and the more easygoing melodic stuff for outside the pool hall respectively
3: yeah some of this more kind of avant-garde style stuff isn't a million miles away from say uh some of the stuff leonard bernstein had done a few years earlier but then there's also the more kind of sing-songy part of it has this very 50s broadway melody quality to me i don't know if either of you felt that way you can almost hear somebody going like, Staslan again, <laughs> again, 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 again.
1: Well, for me, what's so awesome about this cue, which is just a tour de force, it's like six and a half minutes long. It's got so many different episodes within it and such variety, but it all flows and feels of a piece This is just a brilliant example for me of Goldsmith Genius because it's got to hit all of these constant changes in this montage sequence, which lasts for a while, and kind of does this extended development of that theme for Studs' friends while, while mixing in a little bit of Studs' theme here and there, and there are these new melodic ideas that are peppered throughout this cue and give it a lot more flavor and variety. But the way they have this momentum continue through all of these different episodes is just remarkable when it really is just kind of a series of scenes.
0: This last year sure was a crock. Well, I got my whole life ahead of me. Like the lady says, life can be beautiful. (laughs)
3: As presented in the film, it feels like it's offered in two distinct sections. And the first part is basically what you're talking about, where there's all these different little things going on in this montage and going, you know, back and forth between the playing pool and the girl watching and Jack Nicholson making his snarky little comments and so on and so forth. And then, once all that is done, you segue into an actual scene, which is underscored by that lads theme building and building and building over the course of this lengthy scene with this woman in the restaurant
1: but it doesn't build consistently in the same mood like it constantly changes one moment it'll be this kind of laid back version and then there's eight seconds when it turns into almost an action-based version of it Basically what happens is that Studs and Buds go to a speakeasy, and they
2: run into this woman. Um, She seems to be kind of a barfly.
1: They notice her sitting alone at a table with her head down. You know, clearly she's trying to escape from the world, and they go over and decide to start harassing her.
3: This scene is an incredibly cruel moment of, of them just, you know, lifting this woman's spirits briefly and then crushing them. And I'm not entirely sure how the film wants us to read it. I honestly don't know. Watching it, I can't tell if the film also thinks this is funny or if it's meant to, you know, feel as cruel and horrible
2: as it is. But man, the music here, that trumpet line underneath all this, is just catchy as all heck. It really is. Maybe a cruel scene, but man, that's
3: a fun piece of music. The most purely entertaining cues in this score tend to accompany scenes where pretty horrible things are happening. There's an even more horrible one later that's just accompanied by a ridiculously fun cue. <laughs> John Williams gets
1: this whole extended solo cadenza here where he just gets to let loose and steal the the section.
3: Oh, and that's one of my favorite little parts too. Like around five minutes and 42 seconds into this cue, there's just a few seconds where it's Williams completely by himself. And in that moment, that very brief little window, it all of a sudden sounds more like a John Williams score than a Jerry Goldsmith score. Just briefly, and then we're back to Jerry Goldsmith. But it's pretty cool.
1: If John Williams wrote like ragtime kind of style.
3: (laughs) Yeah, you know, a lot of the Williams, it almost has a kind of a silent movie sort of quality, especially with that little clickety-clack percussion beneath it. Feels very much like something that uh, might accompany, you know, a late 20s comedy. Really cool.
1: My favorite part of the cue, though, is right after that when we return to the main Studs Lonigan theme very dramatically. But along with it, the piano is going along and the lads theme comes in as counterpoint. And this is what I was talking about earlier when they kind of meld together and you feel like the influence that Studs is feeling from his pals crushing down on his own personality a bit as he goes along with them. And this is the final sequence that this cue underscores.
3: I was a little confused during this scene were they meant to be watching somebody have sex down in the alley?
1: I think they're looking in somebody's window, you know, down in their apartment or something. Like, this is a, a subterranean apartment a little bit, and it's got a window <laughs> opening up, and they're peeking in. Okay. And they go on to make these... Uh, um... they, they make these faces, especially <laughs> studs. <laughs> Lecherous expressions. Yeah. And eventually somebody puts the screen down or something. But... And then they're, they're like, oh. But Goldsmith is
2: working really hard here. I know, Clark, you said you were a little confused, but this is, again, Goldsmith papering over weaknesses in the rest of the film, I think. Watching the scene without the score, the scene wouldn't be nearly as comprehensible as it is. Yeah, what a
3: showcase. I mean, I think the most prominent one in his career to date, this cue, is just an incredible demonstration of what Jerry Goldsmith was capable of. This cue
2: in particular of all the cues on this score is the one that you're definitely going to put on your cooled smith (laughs) mixtape for sure then there's a fairly abrupt transition
0: another year 1922 even god can't make it 1921 again i guess
2: What strikes me about this scene is just the pacing of the film when you realize that a whole two years, apparently, is encapsulated in a game of pool. It's
3: all he was doing. Yep. Yeah, the pacing is all over the place, and these little narration bits are almost hilariously awkward in their presentation, trying to cover so much ground so quickly, and and clearly feel like something that we're stuck in at the last minute as a way to cover the vast chunks of material that had been trimmed for time clumsy attempts to make this movie feel coherent
2: but we're now at a park with merry-go-round so there's merry-go-round source music in the
3: background
1: yeah it's like a, a town fair
3: or something it's horrible source music too and it goes on for an eternity Yep, and I'll probably end up layering it in the background of this
1: conversation that we're about to have. (laughs) That'd be hilarious if you layer it behind you saying that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But this is the scene where, so Studs and Lucy have finally graduated high school, and he is angry with her for wanting to go to college to make new friends, because as always, it has to be all about him.
5: Oh
1: God, he's so obnoxious in this scene. Look, Lucy, maybe I'm
0: dumb or something. Maybe, maybe you got to spell it out. But I don't, I don't understand what you have to go to college for.
4: I told you, Bill, I want to meet new friends. I don't see what's so difficult or complicated in understanding that.
0: You mean your old friends ain't good enough? Well, that's it, ain't it? Go and say it. You're tired of your old friends. And and you're fed up with the neighborhood.
4: I used to like the neighborhood. Now it's all changed.
5: Maybe
0: you're the one that's changed, Lucy.
4: All right, I'm changed. Is that so terrible?
0: I am
2: 100% with Lucy on this one. Yeah. Good for you, Lucy, for getting away from this guy.
1: Their relationship is so barely touched upon in this movie. Like, we just kind of peek in on them at various times, and it's very likely that the source material had a lot more going on there.
3: Well, it's possible, but it's also possible that she's really more meant as kind of a storytelling device, too. Like, all that really matters, as far as we're concerned with her, is that she's this elusive figure that he's always pining after and will never get, and, oh, Lucy, wonderful Lucy, who's always letting me down and disappointing me by going off to college, and all this different stuff.
2: We should talk about Eileen and Polly, I think, briefly, since that is the other subplot that is going on during this uh, fair scene. Eileen is basically pressuring Polly to propose uh, and tells him that she's got another offer, but she really loves him, so if
3: he wants to marry her, he should go through with that.
1: She needs a place to stay. She's getting kicked out of the
3: house. And he, he's pretty grumpy about being forced into this situation. He doesn't really like either of his choices all that much, but it's either propose to her or lose
2: her. The reason for his reluctance is that he knows that his gang does not approve, which is kind of hilarious. Studs even acknowledges the hypocrisy of this because, <laughs> you know, Studs really wants to marry Lucy, but they're very categorically against being tied down
1: internally he's like what is he thinking but then immediately after he's like still if lucy was willing to go study with me then oh okay i might marry her if i could control her that way
2: yeah, <laughs> these monologues just really make me hate this guy. <laughs> yeah.
1: And Eileen, at least, is. We'll talk about it later, but she's revealed to be a character with some depth. You know, she's actually developed a bit more, even in this movie.
2: Yeah, but we're not going to talk too much about Polly and Eileen, except for, like, the one pivotal thing about them later.
3: And in general, there's not a whole lot of substantial subplot material involving the other guys in the gang. We, we're mostly focusing on them when they're, you know, being part of the rowdy group. In the next
2: scene, Studs's father insists on Studs getting a job, finally. And when Studs defies him, that's when he strikes him. So uh, Studs storms out, and there's another voiceover interlude with yet another segment of Studs's theme on harmonica.
1: This is another thematic fragment, not on the album, that leads directly into an album cue very smoothly, the one called Protection.
3: This one is actually a little bit longer than the previous one, too. This interlude in particular, this narration,
2: is a great example of the narration kind of fixing continuity and explaining character motivation, because without it, the next part of the film would play as even sillier than it already does, I think. (laughs) Studs has decided, forget apprenticing, as a house painter from my dad, I'm going to be a gangster. Oh, gosh. <laughs> At the start of this piece, you know, transitioning from the narration, he is literally standing in front of a poster for Born to Kill of Robert Stevens, and he proceeds to try and emulate him and, like, dress like him. He's, like, putting on the flat cap, putting the cigarette in his mouth, and going into the speakeasy.
1: I thought it was kind of funny. The The music kind of Mickey Mouses that a bit. It imitates him knocking on the door a little.
2: yes. I love those scratchy strings that Goldsmith employs while Studs is dressing up. That is where the Twilight Zone influence, I feel, shines through the strongest. It really made me think of Nervous Men in a $4 Room, that sound.
3: Yeah, you've got that kind of pizzicato rhythm in this cue, which feels a little bit different from everything else we've heard so far.
1: For me, it felt like kind of a more halting and unsure version of his theme. It kind of captured his awkwardly trying to put on this character.
0: Someday, someday, damn it, if I don't make the lousy world take back everything it's doing to me. Someday I'm going to make the world and plenty of the punks in it eat what I got to eat. Someday I'm going to bust loose like hell on wheels, and when I do...
1: Clark, I think you noticed this is the standout example where the cue as written and recorded is actually dialed out during the film.
2: This cue basically gets split in half the way that it is presented in the film.
1: In the film, yeah. On the album, it keeps playing. It'd be interesting to, you know, match it up to that sequence in the film. It was probably, they wanted to pull it back and have just the uh, empty bar
3: be emphasized right i'd have to double check i feel like the sequence in the film is actually a little bit longer yes than the music that continues in the queue but yeah there's about 14 seconds or so of music that's in the queue on the album that just completely disappears in the movie and then the queue resumes after a short period and carries through to the end so uh, yeah something odd happened in editing somewhere along the line This scene that's coming up here is a scene I actually genuinely kind of love because it's one of the scenes in this film that seems entirely aware of just how ridiculous and out of his depth Studs is.
1: (laughs) He (laughs) Um, really gets put in his place here in an entertaining
3: way. Yeah, and it's amazing he doesn't get hurt too because there are these two mobsters sitting at this table with their girlfriends or their girls for the night, whatever. And he goes over and basically says, I want to talk to you alone, (laughs) you know, and they shoo the girls off and essentially tells them, you know, I want to be a gangster. I'm a tough guy. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And they, I think, immediately recognize this kid for what he is and hand him a gun and say, OK, well, there's a guy coming in in just a minute. All you got to do is pull the trigger, take him out. And Studs is so immediately overwhelmed by this and is just shaking and quaking. This is another example of Christopher Knight just really overplaying it. But he's quaking in his boots and when the guy actually enters the room, he just flees in a panic. And of course, everybody thinks it's completely hilarious. Even the bartender... Who works there you know thinks this is the funniest thing in the world Uh, yeah uh, yep (laughs) who knows studs right (laughs) and it's a pretty funny bit and one of the moments of the movie i genuinely enjoyed
2: you know it's funny speaking of nervous man in a four dollar room this is kind of nervous man in a four dollar room in microcosm
1: yep (laughs) pretty much but they don't actually want the guy dead that's the difference They are actually just meeting this fellow gangster, I guess.
3: Right, and I think they are so certain that this overconfident kid is not going to be able to do anything, (laughs) that there's never any real threat to this man's life.
1: Yeah, I mean, if they're wrong, oh well, it's not them. (laughs) So the music re-enters when Studs asks the bartender for a shot and starts asking about the gangsters in the corner. And there's this new little melody that appears here on low flute accompanied by these cool little brass punctuations like can't imitate it very well, but it's a very cool little goldsmithy punctuation sound that I like at the end of this cue.
3: there's some interesting variations on that lads theme over that kind of seesawing rhythm.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of seesawing in
3: various parts in this score. Which, you know, now that I think about it, uh, with all due respect to the excellent liner notes, I don't know if the lads theme is entirely appropriate since it does tend to pop up when it's just him, but maybe it's for the scenes where he's acting like the other members of the group would act. So maybe that makes some sense.
1: Maybe it's like two sides of his own personality. He's got like the more melancholic side and he's got the wilder side that they play to and that they bring out. It can still be there when they're not there, I guess.
2: When he's tempted to do bad things. Mm -hmm. But no, Studs instead runs straight home where his father awaits, along with yet another take
3: on the main theme, first on harmonica, then on strings. And this is one of the more substantial cues that isn't on the album.
1: I think it's the most substantial score cue. If we eliminate that semi-source dance music early on, this is, for me, the most interesting of the
3: unreleased music. It's covering material we basically hear elsewhere. It's the main theme presented in a pretty straightforward way, but it works pretty well for this little scene.
1: It's kind of a touching scene, like it's a little bit of a prodigal son kind of scene. It's the
2: one time, yeah, that we see a different side of his father.
3: Yeah. Bill.
0: Hello, Dad. I've been worried about you. Are you ready to come home now? Yeah. Yeah, Dad. One thing's for sure. I ain't going to work for the old man. That's my idea, nothing.
1: His father knows that he's not doing well and he's a little more supportive here, I guess.
3: (laughs) It's just that it happens so fast, you know, with his father hitting him and him running off and going to be a gangster and failing and running back home in the reunion. It happens so quickly.
1: And you're like, oh, his father really does love him after all or something.
3: It, it, yeah, but it just plays like a little miniature comedy because it all happens with such speed.
1: Well, the music, I think this cue, though it is brief, it's effective and in- creating sympathy after this, you know, ridiculous scene we just saw him in. Like, it's got this subdued and defeated feel to it. You know, it's like Tigger lost his bounce a little bit here. (laughs) But we're
2: in optimistic territory again in the next scene, where Studs, after considering being a gangster, he now considers being a musician instead. Goldsmith furnishing a lovely bit of dreamy saxophone music here.
1: If Jerry wrote this, it... Doesn't sound anything like the rest of the score, but it's definitely an underscore cue that's maybe it's like him imagining what it could be to play the saxophone.
2: That's exactly what it is. Ah, I could sound like this.
1: Yeah, but it's a hilarious contrast we get because this is in his head when he's reading the classified ad or whatever about the possibility of learning to play saxophone. And then immediately after, apparently his father, who's been feeling generous lately, actually bought him a saxophone and lessons. And he's awful.
0: Learn to play the saxophone, America's favorite instrument. Play for dances, records, radio. Big money. Lead your own band. For free information...
1: This is the time I most sympathized with his dad when he's just trying to read the paper downstairs and he's just like, oh God.
4: Now, Patrick.
3: I understand why, if this is Goldsmith, why it wasn't included on the album because it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense on its own without the stud's punchline, but in the movie it works really well. I'm
2: pretty sure that the, the first, ha- that, that dreamy sax is Goldsmith. It's exactly the sort of thing that Jerry Goldsmith would never put on an album. <laughs> <laughs> right. Stud's flirtation with the saxophone is very short lived.
0: So, you don't want to be a house painter, you got to be a saxophone player. So, I buy it. $83, 46 for lessons, and then you go hock the thing. And don't tell me you didn't, don't tell me, because I found it. I found the pawn ticket right in there.
2: As a result, We then get to the next sequence, accompanied by a cue that Goldsmith called Out of Work, appropriately, because it's a montage where Studs wanders the neighborhood, feeling sorry for himself for not having job skills. I love the big, melodramatic way that this cue opens and then gently flows into that dejected string
3: theme, with little one-note bursts of harmonica interjecting. This little rhythm on harmonica made me think, Of that digging cue from Gunsmoke that we covered in the previous episode. Mm -hmm.
1: Did you guys get the sense in this cue that there's this waltz rhythm that keeps trying to start and it keeps failing?
2: Yes. Those little harmonica interjections kind of interrupt the waltz theme.
1: Yeah. Like it tries to be carefree and is like, nope, you know, it's not working.
3: Yeah, there's some of that, and then there's a little bit later in the queue, there's this uh, another similarly almost kind of waltzy sort of thing that sounds to me very much like Goldsmith doing a Carter Burwell kind of thing, Uh, obviously way before Carter Burwell's time. We should mention, too, that if you're familiar with Studs Lonigan through the Verez album, Out of Work is actually two cues sandwiched together. One from later in the film. Right. One comes later in the film, almost a half hour later, in fact. But I was unaware of that before actually watching the movie because I did not have the uh, updated... Oh, is, is it a quartet? Quartet, yeah. Thankfully, quartet stepped in and fixed
2: the old album.
1: There's no extra music, but it's reordered chronologically and the one combined track is split into its two respective cues called Out of Work 1 and Out of Work 2 later on, even though it doesn't seem to fit the title, Out of Work. Well, it doesn't fit musically either. uh, Those cues should have never been combined. Yeah, I kind of think Out of Work is the title of this cue and the other one probably had some other title that got
3: lost or something. And on the Verez album as well, uh, the cues, especially the run of cues in the midsection of the album, are all jumbled up and out of order. So it's an unusual... It works really well as a self-contained listening experience, and that's the way I'd experienced for so many years. But now, having watched the movie, uh, it's going to be very frustrating trying to listen to that and hearing the cues all over the place like that. There's always the new album. That is true.
1: So the ending of this cue, as written, it feels more abrupt than is typical and it's kind of like this plucked note and a swell which in the film it's used to transition into this burlesque club source music sort of an interesting cut i think this was probably conceived this way for the score cue to have that seamless transition into the source music here
0: wanted uh experienced mechanic you want experience mechanic paulie hey paulie look again huh maybe there's an ad there that says wanted an experienced pool shark. Salesmen, chauffeurs, electrical engineers. I get a good idea. Let's, Let's get, get a, a drink. drink.
2: We are at a burlesque show now, an extremely tame burlesque show.
1: Yes, where a glove gets removed over the course of, I don't know, a minute or so.
3: This is another scene that's supposed to feel kind of raunchy without much actually happening. And I don't know if this source music is Goldsmith or not. It's pretty catchy, but I'm not sure. Taking off the glove drives uh, Studs and Buds pretty wild. Right, it's enough to get Studs extremely, troublingly hot and bothered.
2: Well, to be fair, the dancer does bear an uncanny resemblance to Alison Brie, so I can understand that to some degree. (laughs) But yeah, next thing we know, Studs is in Miss Miller's apartment again. Yeah. And even though at least two years have passed since we last saw those two characters interact, the relationship doesn't seem to have advanced very much. I mean, I'm assuming that they've seen each other a few times, but maybe it's just him visiting her again after two years, I don't know. But this time, while she's making coffee and talking about the weather, Stud starts imagining her as the burlesque dancer, and he excites himself to such a degree that he lurches at her and rips her dress to expose her
3: décolletage. This is something that should be a pretty scary thing. Out of nowhere, out of the blue, she doesn't know he's having this wild fantasy raging in his head, and he just jumps up and essentially assaults her, and her reaction is not, oh my god, get out of my house, it's, oh, you poor thing. She does seem briefly
2: terrified. But then, once he slips into acting remorseful, that's when she starts to feel sorry for him, but also clearly turned on.
3: Yeah, you see, he senses the horribleness of what he's done, and she sort of pulls him close, and is like, all right, well, we're gonna do this, I guess. (laughs) And It's okay.
1: Oh, God, it's terrible.
3: Yeah, it's an unusual relationship. But the way this scene is put together, though, it's one of the more interesting cinematic moments.
1: Yeah, we transition from the actual scene in the burlesque club to him with her there and it cuts between her as she is there with the classical music she's playing and then it cuts to the burlesque music and him picturing her in, you know, a skimpy outfit and dancing around. It keeps going back and forth until the moment of assault.
3: Very creatively edited,
1: yeah. But after some more failure
2: in the job market, and Lucy growing further and further apart from him, Studs finally relents and agrees to Apprentice for his old man.
1: Because you've got to do something, his father says.
2: This cue in the score is called simply The Job, and as with Game of Pool and Protection, there is an unreleased little opening
1: bit to it. More slow, mournful solo harmonica. Director Lerner
2: really likes montages, so... The next big thing is a montage. It's a pretty good one. It's uh, Studs going about his new job, intercut with his buddies, egging him on about drinking. And why doesn't he get as drunk as he used to?
1: That theme for his friends comes back in again as they're uh, complaining about him not hanging out with them as much because he's got this job. Yeah, over this very methodical
2: beat. That perfectly conveys to me the
1: daily grind.
2: Yeah, the everyday drudgery is kind of unmistakable. Mm -hmm. It tells us that this job marks kind of a defeat for studs. So it's a really, really clever. This again is kind of too disparate. It's Goldsmith kind of taking a montage of scenes that really don't go together
3: and pulling them together in the music. And you've got just a little bit of the main theme tossed in here, too but mostly focused on that secondary theme.
1: It kind of stops abruptly when his friends bring up Lucy's name briefly. It, it goes back to his kind of melancholy, sentimental version of his theme.
0: Good's got to happen. I ain't getting any younger. I ain't a kid no more. Sometimes I don't even know what I'm waiting for.
1: Do we want to talk about that scene uh, with Miss Miller?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Miss Miller is finally coming to her senses and ready to break it off with studs. Good, you know, showcase for the actress here, too. One of the best acting moments, for sure. The, The movie does have some good speeches like this.
4: When you first came to see me, you were always intoxicated. I knew you would be, and yet I look forward to your visits. I thought I could help you. And help myself I was so lonely And I hope uh, I hope for what happened even though I knew it was wrong not wrong because you still love Lucy wrong because of the, the difference in our ages and wrong to have to hide how we felt from other people being so ashamed Wrong to have to confine our lives together to this one little room.
1: So then the next scene we have is him meeting with his friends to discuss the club that they're all going to open together.
2: (laughs) That scene is continuing perhaps the biggest narrative through line of Studs Lonegan, characters planning things that come to nothing. (laughs) 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 Because Paulie announces that he has borrowed $5,000 from his father, Which he's going to invest in a bar that he and the gang are going to run together.
3: Yeah, this well, and I think this is the Prohibition era, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah, so they're going to make a speakeasy. Yeah, they're going to make some money illegally and it's going to be big business. Studs, working in the painting profession, has access to alcohol.
1: Which, of course, is the same sort of alcohol people drink.
3: Yeah. It'll do. It'll do. People used to kill themselves (laughs) with that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, they've got big plans and this is going to be a big thing.
1: Yeah, Paulie's like, Eileen is going to be proud of me for a change. I'm going to start living like a human being, he says. And then he's dead.
3: It's a fantastic <laughs> dark comedy. Uh, well, that went about the way these things usually go. Bit. The cut directly from his uproarious laughter into her sobbing. <laughs> <laughs>
2: The conversation at the funeral where we learned that Polly was hit by a truck, apparently, is so offhanded and kind of in the background that the first time I missed it, and I just assumed that he died from alcohol poisoning. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yavar, I know you were a big fan of the woman who plays Polly's girlfriend.
1: Eileen, the actress's name is Susie Carnell, and I don't know her from anything else. In this scene, she really delivers a powerful monologue She just lays into Studs and Weary and Kenny. They ruined his life. And it just makes you take a different perspective of things. And for me, it's the best single monologue in the movie is her performance in this scene was really a standout.
4: According to them, marrying me was a trap. Having the baby was a trap. Don't go home, Polly. Hang around, Polly. Shoot another game of pool, Polly. Have another drink, Polly. (laughs) Polly. They didn't have anybody,
5: so they didn't want him to have anybody either. They didn't want him to love me, but he did.
3: I kind of have mixed feelings on this scene. On the one hand, the thing I like about it is that she paints a very vivid picture of Paulie and their relationship and his inner conflict. I think she explains that really well. It's nice that she's able to grant that aspect of the movie some dimension that it didn't have. On the other hand, the way the scene is played, it feels so abruptly melodramatic in the midst of everything else that you can almost see the For Your Consideration banner beneath it. You
1: think this movie was having Oscar... uh... Yes,
3: I do. In its original, you know, it's an adaptation of a a very distinguished book. It was originally a much longer thing. I think they absolutely had that in mind early on. But once it's over, it kind of fades from memory because the film moves on and doesn't really make anything of it it's not
1: like even studs's character is just haunted by her words or something it's just kind of <laughs> as if <laughs> yeah it just passes by so it's like a really strong moment and it feels like they felt like they had to adapt a strong moment in the book or something but it doesn't have a payoff or much build-up in the movie itself the next
2: scene after the funeral we find that studs has actually made a little something of himself working mm-hmm. for his father And they're now christening a new sign, Patrick Lonigan and
3: son. You know, maybe for the best that this bootlegging endeavor didn't really work out because it kept him on the straight and narrow, more or less, and allowed him to actually make a tiny bit of personal progress. We find
1: out he hasn't had a drink since Paulie died. Which is, again, why the first time I thought that Paulie
3: probably died of <laughs> alcohol poisoning, and it's just... Studs is like, yeah, better lay off this.
1: <laughs> when Studs is kind of regarding himself positively in the mirror, and, like, his new improved version of himself, I think there's, like, a new, upbeat, hopeful motif here. Oh, yeah. Bright and optimistic motif. A real contrast to the
3: score as a whole. Yeah, it's a contrast. It's not a development of stuff we've heard before, right? Well, you've got the main theme here, too. And it's a very cheerful, almost unrecognizable version of the main theme. It's much more optimistic. And you talked earlier about the way the harmonica is used in this score. Well, here the harmonica sounds more like the traditional kind of Americana sound you would expect. There's nothing noirish or bluesy about the theme anymore. It sounds very much like Goldsmith's warmer kind of Americana material. And it's using the central thematic. Material from the score, but sounds pretty out of sync with the score in a lot of Mm. other ways. Right. And there's a
2: sprightly jaunt that Goldsmith expresses in the score when Studs approaches Lucy's apartment because he feels he's finally put himself together, he's finally got a job. Now I'm going to win Lucy
3: back. Yes, he says that he's earned the right to see her because he's got his money saved and isn't drinking.
1: And you're like, your dad tried to get you to join him in the house painting business years ago, and you could have done that in the first place, and maybe been with Lucy by now, if that was going to work.
3: Yep, but of course, things don't work out the way Studs expects.
1: Even in this queue, the music turns uneasy. Brief hints of the lad's music come in. When he realizes she's moved away. So like that representing the, the other side of him inside. Yeah, like he's going to slip back. Yeah,
3: exactly. She didn't even tell him that she was leaving, which really upsets him because he feels he was entitled to some kind of explanation. And it reinforces that while he's been pining for Lucy this whole entire time, she wasn't giving a second thought to him, which it should have been obvious a long time ago. But, you know, studs is studs.
1: And I think this actually is another case where the cue cuts off a little bit abruptly at the end in the film. Goldsmith wrote a little bit more for piccolo and strings here that gets dialed out.
2: But you know, Studs really has no reason to worry about being alone. Even if he can't be with Lucy, immediately after that, he decides to visit Miss Miller, who just happens to be entertaining her young and beautiful niece, Catherine, that very moment.
3: (laughs) It's just hilarious to me that Studs, immediately after realizing that Lucy is gone, he's like, well, plan B, back to the teacher (laughs) again, after, after her clear rejection of him earlier.
1: And she just welcomes him in and introduces him to her niece who's visiting. And you're like, it's almost like she's setting them up a little bit, and it's really weird.
2: Yeah, here's someone a little more age appropriate for you.
1: Yeah, which I should point out the actress Helen Westcott is only six years older than the actress who plays her niece. If we can
2: accept steve mcqueen in the blob as a teenager i feel like this is pretty normal but yeah the fact that there's no perceivable age difference between miss miller and studs maybe um, a
1: little maybe a little but mm, yeah i don't know so her niece is played by an actress carolyn craig who speaking of classic horror movies she was familiar face to me from the house on haunted hill
5: oh yeah
3: okay that's where i'd seen her that's a great movie yeah yeah i didn't put two and two together with her
1: but we cut
2: abruptly to a political celebration hosted by the newly elected alderman of the municipality. And another party. Yeah, Stutz and his friends are there. They're there to party it up. Booze is on the house. And Goldsmith's score is once again in full-on, desperate, let's live it up party mode. This is the Out of Work 2 that we talked about earlier.
1: That's what it's called. And it's the second part of Out of Work on the Varez album. But it feels more like a game of pool 2. Totally. This one starts a little bit more hectically
2: even than Game of Pool did. More forceful, maybe. More forceful, yeah.
1: Something I forgot to mention before, I feel like these crazy party cues, I feel like I hear Stravinskyan rhythms in them a bit. You know, it makes me think a little, it's, it's jazzy, so not quite, but it makes me think of kind of the unrestrained parts of Rite of Spring, rhythmically perhaps. I didn't get Stravinsky from it, other than
2: in the sense that Goldsmith is generally influenced by Stravinsky, so there's certainly a little bit of that.
1: Well, it's coming out more in these sequences during this score, for me. Like, it's got those offbeat rhythms. What struck me about this cue is just how
2: increasingly out of control it seems to get, ending on an appropriately dark, brutal note in the music, even though it starts off so fun.
3: once again such a treat to hear john williams doing his thing johnny williams at this point because the jazz piano in this is just thrilling and it's a really fun cue despite what happens in the scene that we'll get into in the spoiler section
1: just to briefly interject i remembered something we forgot to mention during the opening credits he was johnny williams at this time but jerry went back to being gerald goldsmith in the opening credits of this movie oh. there was so much back and forth you know his mother was like on the next one can you be Gerald again because <laughs> he was Jerry on the, the Gunsmokes we just saw and the Twilight Zones but here on a feature film again that his mother was maybe going to go into the theaters to watch he reverted back to Gerald again mm. yeah
2: he couldn't quite get away with that uh, um, as much as
1: in uh, on television yeah he was probably like oh mom's not going to watch this random Gunsmoke episode but <laughs> she'll go to the theater and see a movie my name's on it yeah so shall we do our review of the film go for it go ahead all right at its core
2: it is an exploitation film with pretensions of depth the philip jordan script seems less concerned with adapting the story than it is with stringing the most lurid and lascivious highlights together in a barely coherent way and then topping it off with a cheap moral but unlike other exploitation fare made later in the decade I don't think Studs Lonegan can really coast on shock value either because it's so tame and one wonders who is this actually for? Uh, I think I've come up with three potential target audiences for this movie. Number one, Jerry Goldsmith fans. (laughs) Number two, genre fans of the time tricked by the film's marketing. And number three, People like Studs' dad who just want a character to look down on and hate for 90 minutes.
1: Number four, hooligans. No,
3: no, there's no vicariously living through Studs. Hooligans are not going to see anything as exciting in Studs' Lonigan as the hooligans in Studs' Lonigan see when they're looking through that window. Yep. yep.
5: <laughs> I
2: will give Lerner this. It is stylistically a step up from City of Fear, which was already pretty stylish, and I enjoy his idiosyncratic editing choices. But I just dislike the story so much, too much, to give Stuts Lonigan any more than a 2 out of 10. Mm.
1: I think I didn't hate it quite as much just because there were redeeming-ish moments for me. Eileen's monologue, even if it didn't go anywhere, it was a good monologue, well acted, and I really like Helen Westcott's Miss Miller. So I'm going to land at a 3 out of 10 on this one, just because it's a bad movie. But like, I see hints at actually trying to adapt the source material, possibly. And and I don't know, maybe the two and a half hour version of this might have had more to redeem it. Or maybe it was cut because it was worse. Who knows? But
2: so much speculation in our reviews this time. (laughs) (laughs)
1: The fatal flaw of this film is the central character and the central performance by Christopher Knight, and it does not sell you on the character and sympathizing with him in any way. Not a good movie, but it has its moments that I consider bright spots, and certainly the score is the highlight of it all.
5: Mm -hmm.
3: So I don't think I would actually really want to see the long version of this movie. As curious as I am, about what it would have been like. I'm very curious. Yeah, I think it's probably for the best that it's a whittled down exploitation movie, essentially, because Christopher Knight's performance is so weak and he just cannot carry this film. It's a combination of his performance and the character as written and portrayed in this adaptation is so flimsy and thin that I just couldn't connect with Studs and his plight at all. That being said, I found this a pretty interesting little movie in a number of ways. There are a lot of little stray self-contained moments that I found intriguing. Not only the wonderful Goldsmith score, of course, which is a treat to listen to throughout, but there are so many different shots that are stylish or do something different or inventive. There are lots of little moments of clever editing that I liked. There are individual supporting performances that make an impression. We mentioned Helen Westcott and how good she is. Jack Nicholson, of course, it's a treat to see him and doing his thing at such a young age. Right off the bat, Frank Gorshin makes a strong impression in his handful of scenes in this movie. And there are little moments kind of scattered throughout just often enough where you see The people working on this film trying to make something artful and interesting and unique. And, you know, the rest of the movie kind of defeating their efforts to do it. I mean, they succeed for those moments. They succeed for those moments. and They don't succeed in making that film that as a whole. But because of those moments and because of how hard they are trying and how many stray little bits of interest are scattered throughout studs. I can't bring myself to be that hard on it, so I actually landed at a 4 out of 10 on this one. I think there's stuff of merit here, even if the stuff that really matters fails completely.
1: All right, so I'm smack dab in the middle. That's an easy uh, calculation to make. We end up at a 3 out of 10 average. Fair enough.
2: So the thing I appreciate most about Erwin Lerner as a director more so than some more talented filmmakers, is that he seemed to know what he had with Goldsmith, and understanding that Goldsmith's contribution was by far the most sophisticated and artful part of these films, and should be front and center, and nice and loud in the mix as well. This is kind of like City of Fear. The score really gets to carry the film in a way that I greatly enjoy. He really lets Goldsmith run hog-wild in this genre, resulting in a very extroverted, showy effort that is a ton of fun, but also a well-rounded score that elegantly straddles the line between romance and tragedy and just a sense of reckless abandon, an energy that somehow manages to feel at once manic yet downbeat. There's not a wasted note in the score. At every moment, there is something interesting happening in the music. It's a soundtrack album that I've loved for a very long time, and when I'm listening to it apart from the film, when I do actually feel touched by the sad romance music and exhilarated by the party music, That is when it is most meaningful to me. I don't think the score is as effective as it could be if it were in a better film where the music isn't telling me to feel sorry for a character I absolutely do not want to feel sorry for, and I would just prefer to think of this as merely a flawless jazz album and forget its association with the movie entirely. I'm going to give Studs Lonegan a 9.5 out of 10. Very impressive.
1: I'm actually right there too. This is a score that the more I listen to it, the more I like it. When I first got the album, I was kind of like, oh, this is kind of a weird schizophrenic jazzy thing. And I went along with parts of it. I, I got into parts of it, but it's one that every time I listen to it, I find more. It's so dense and there's more and more to admire in it. It's harder now having seen the film, but... I like to think I can still listen to the score and imagine the story in a different way with a more sympathetic character when I hear that sympathetic theme. And it's just musically so strong, I think I'll still be able to do that. I don't think having seen the film will actually drag down my ability to do that very much. I'm also landing at a 9.5 out of 10. I think that puts it even with The Big Tall Wish. For you, yeah. Yeah, which was my favorite thing so far. and. This is, like, right there with it, although he's got more extended sequences to really knock it out of the park. So it's a little bit unfair to compare them, but it's got the same kind of um, depth to it whilst having a lot more development. And I think it's his strongest thing to date. It's a masterpiece, and it's going to be hard to top going forward, but he's going to do it.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, you guys aren't going to get a whole lot of disagreement from me on this. This is a sensational score. An extraordinary and thrilling album of music that covers a whole lot of territory. Goldsmith doing what he does best in a number of different areas. The noirish main theme is wonderfully moody. The jazz material is just a blast. And he covers a whole lot of other different areas that are very interesting. I enjoy the album a great deal on its own terms. In the movie, I think it mostly works really well. There are a couple of moments where it maybe tiptoes into overblown melodrama a little bit more than Goldsmith typically does. Not as much City of Fear. Not as much as City of Fear. No, but this is still an incredibly sophisticated and accomplished work, far and away for me, Uh, his finest achievement to date that we've covered on The Goldsmith Odyssey, and I, too, landed a 9.5 out of 10.
2: Oh, 9.5. Wow, wow, Wow. Wow. unanimous
1: agreement. Yeah. Crazy. But we all had to go that 0.5 so that we can't have an easy calculation. I even feel bad not giving it a 10, because for what it is, there's no element of it as music that's less than perfect and less than amazing. Yeah. I felt like I had to give it a teensy-weensy bit of a ceiling. We're going to go so many amazing places, I know. Yeah, knowing
2: where I'm going to fall on some future Goldsmith stuff, I just couldn't have this be the top.
1: Yeah,
3: same here. The only stuff that I would kind of be like, ah about a little bit we'll get into in the spoiler section but i do think maybe he pushes a touch much in some of the later cues but that would be my only like actual criticism of it and why i wouldn't go full 10 on this
1: still if we're rounding for star ratings this is definitely a five star goldsmith oh for sure yeah,
2: yeah. scores like this of why we have the goldsmith ratio yes
1: this will be a new record for us So by calculating our average rating for the score of 9.5 and dividing that by our average score for the film, which is three, we arrive at a Goldsmith ratio of 3.17. Wow.
2: Mm, That's a good Goldsmith ratio. Very impressive.
1: Yeah, I I think it'll be a little while before we uh, reach that again, honestly. The movie would have to be
2: really awful. I, I think, Clark, you ruined a bet. We could have had an even more awesome Goldsmith ratio if
3: you had not scored the movie way too high. You know, I understand that, but I am too honest and pure to do anything that would uh, sully my reputation. Vote your conscience. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I just I couldn't bring myself to hate it quite as much as you guys. As much as it fails in a lot of different ways, it's it's an interesting failure. You don't hate it, but you wouldn't watch the longer version. I hate it. I would. It's it's not that I wouldn't it wouldn't watch the longer version. It's that I think that would probably be a more tedious experience the one we're supposed to take seriously the prestigious version that's actually a more coherent piece of storytelling that's less just a series of interesting moments i can catch on to that's over relatively quickly
1: well if i may make a suggestion there is a three episode miniseries from 1979 with a different actor playing studs
3: (laughs) you should go watch it and report back yavar yeah you know how i feel The Goldsmith version is always the canonical version. So this is the Studs Lonigan for me. (laughs) So someday, like Mike Lee or somebody is like, we're going to make a proper Studs Lonigan, going to make a modern cinematic masterpiece. You'd have to be like, yeah, yeah, but too bad. The Goldsmith version's already there. I would have to boycott it the way that I boycott every remake (laughs) of a movie with a Goldsmith score.
2: That is commitment. I'm nothing but, if not consistent in this regard.
1: All right, well, we should talk briefly where people can get the film if they're interested to suffer through it as well.
2: My copy was from the UK. It has a DVD release in the UK. Region 2. Yeah, it's a Region 2, and it's a pan and scan, clearly of a tape, transfer of the movie. And that is also the one that you'll find online if you go through the illicit channels.
1: But it has been commercially released on disc, even if it's not, you know, gorgeous looking. In another country, Yes. Yes. But uh, thankfully, it's had a couple releases on CD, which we mentioned briefly before, the original Verez with the, the cues out of order.
2: That was a CD Club release, I believe.
1: Yeah, it was on their club line. And then thankfully, Quartet reissued it, although that's now out of print as well. But because there have been two releases, it's not super expensive on the secondhand market. So you can definitely find a copy of the score to enjoy for yourself. And I don't think the Quartet
2: sounds very much better than the Verez, so they're both good options. But if you care about chronological sequencing, mm-hmm. like I do, then I think the quartet is the way to go. Do I think the Verez has a bonus track mono version of the main theme for some reason?
3: Yeah, if you care about the uh, mono version of the main theme, that is there and is not on the quartet.
1: But the quartet one has excellent liner notes by Jeff Bond, if you like that kind of analysis.
3: Yeah, which we have talked about. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's time to discuss the... Uh...
3: Unpleasant stuff. Jens... If you would, please lead us into the strange new territory. We'll be back with spoilers after the beam.
2: So, we last left off with studs and friends at an election victory party. This scene is a testament not only to how reprehensible these characters are, but how unfathomably stupid they are. During the party, there's some, shall we say, executive overreach going on in the upper rooms, and we see some half-naked women storming out of them. And then Jack Nicholson's character, Weary, decides that, well, if these bigwigs could take advantage of women in public, then I can too. Needless to say, this ends
0: badly for everyone. Hey, wake up then. This is going to be a tough rap
4: to meet, young fella. You ain't got nothing on me. Heh, <laughs> that's what you think. What are you talking not. about? Francis Riley, you have been charged and found guilty of the crime of rape. For this, I sentence you to ten years in the state penitentiary at Joliet. <gasps> oh.
0: Polly's dead. And Weary'd be better off dead. Lucy's married out of town somewhere. Just Kenny and me now.
3: Yeah, this is um extraordinarily, um, you know, reprehensible behavior, of course, as you say, Yins, but yeah, uh, bizarre that he would attempt this in such a public place. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine why he thought he was going to get away with that, perhaps because he's already done so many bad things and gotten away with them up to this point, but he's in prison <laughs> for 10 years now.
2: I enjoy him yelling, uh, you got nothing on me, while the (laughs) cops drag him away. Yeah. If only all sex criminals could be as brazenly public about their behavior as Wary. Mm. We could solve a lot of problems. Now that Sturz is even lonelier, an emotional gear shift again to an elegant little flute theme for Catherine, uh, leading into Sturz's theme again when they run into each other on a street corner.
1: Yeah they interact a little bit. Their themes, or their melodies here interact a little bit when the characters are. Yeah, and I enjoyed those little brassy
2: accents under Studs' theme. They add a sense of excitement that really befits the moment that like he seems like happy to see her, and he's like running towards her and stuff. And Goldsmith accentuates that really well.
5: mm hmm <laughs>
3: This theme for Catherine, it has a slightly nervous, uncertain quality. You know, it's attractive, but it's not the sort of conventionally warm, inviting theme you might expect. This is a a relationship that's proceeding on a more tentative note than some of his others.
1: He's just kind of with her because she's available. There's not even, you know, as much attraction as he felt for her aunt, much less Lucy. But she loves him and she believes in
2: his goodness for some reason. Mm
3: Yeah, there's so many people who believe Studs is fundamentally good with so little evidence of that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, I guess by Studs' Lonegan standards, he's treating her better than most. But if I said some of these things to my wife, I'd definitely end up sleeping on the love seat. (laughs) If next time she asked me if I want a cup of coffee, I replied, Why are all women the same? They don't know what to say, so they just (laughs) offer you coffee. I don't think that would go
3: over. You wouldn't be offered any more coffee, for one thing.
2: No. But Catherine is a saint in human form. So instead of kicking him out, she suggests maybe not hating people so much, and then
1: has sex with him. And that brings us to the cue, no hate. Uh, to me, a very uh, cringeworthy love scene.
3: <laughs> it's pretty bad.
1: He's like comparing the women he's been intimate with. Uh, it's pretty cringeworthy, but the scoring is
2: lovely. Yeah, The music manages to convey the complex coalescence of emotions that the script fails to convey.
3: Yeah, this cue goes a number of different directions, but it's essentially a pretty moody dissection of the main theme, more or less, uh, taking it in a few different places. And there's, around the 50-second mark or so, there's a really lovely kind of full string take on the main theme that I like a lot. It's it's lush and attractive and kind of a high point of this cue.
1: There's kind of a fragility and a vulnerability going on here that's maybe tied more to Catherine than Studs, but it's really delicate and... I don't really care about her character very much, but, you know, the music, if anything, could make me. Goldsmith's working overtime...
2: It's in moments like this, for me, where Jerry most seems to channel Alex North in approach and depth of feeling more so than style, though. The instrumental detail is still unmistakably Jerry. And I don't think the score owes as much to Alex North as seems to be the general consensus among folks who write about film music.
1: Yeah, we did some research. We listened to The Sound and the Fury and... uh... What was the other one? The Long Hot Summer. Yeah, The Long Hot Summer. And, you know, nothing really stood out. There were parts of those that sounded like generally possibly influential on Goldsmith. But on this score in particular, I was grasping at straws and not really coming up with much. This may be grasping at straws. There's
2: like a little bit of the Sound and the Fury main title that has a similar energy to some of the more manic jazz in this, mm-hmm. but it doesn't sound like it because it doesn't have that Stravinsky influence that you pointed
1: out. Yeah, it doesn't have that same
2: rhythmic... I suspect
3: that part of why people think of this score as a kind of Alex Northy score is it does have a similar amount of balance between, you know, moodier, more dramatic material and more upbeat jazz material that a few North scores had. And so in that sense, it feels like it could be a North score, but there's nothing specific. It just struck me as being in the fashion of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which again, you know, North was a, a pioneer of that fashion at that time. So that's possibly another reason for the comparisons.
2: We'd be remiss if we didn't bring it up. People would just think that we ignored them telling us that we should listen to those North scores. But right. uh, uh, well, we
3: did our homework and yeah, not a lot to report back.
2: This is maybe a little Alex Northy. Uh, this cue, no hate in its tone. But anywho, Studs is commitment-phobic, and eventually being around Catherine gets to be too annoying for him, so he dumps her. Then he once again laments the lack of easy breaks in his life. So Goldsmith begins this cue, entitled No Break, with an uneasy repeating two-note motif building into another melancholy rendition of Studs's theme, a few little piano notes accentuating the end of each phrase.
1: This short cue has an interesting rhythm going on in it it's kind of encapsulating stud's dissatisfaction i guess
3: it reminds me a little bit in tone and feel not in melody so much but just to the overall feeling of it uh, of john barry's petulia score which came about a decade later a uh, very cool moody noir sort of thing mm-hmm.
2: Speaking of Studs being dissatisfied, this next cue called The Crises um, begins very melodramatically the moment that Studs learns from Catherine that she's about to have a baby. And that is the first of The Crises. The second is the Wall Street Crash of 1929.
1: We know which one is worse for Studs in this moment. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh,
2: yeah, classic kind of rising and falling motif here from Jerry, resulting in a strong, fatalistic feeling.
1: It's like a fragment of Stud's theme.
3: Studs being the eternally classy individual that he is, his immediate response is, oh, how can we get rid of the pregnancy? And starts exploring that. And he proves to be kind of astonishingly dense in his um, conversation with the doctor. (laughs) Aren't there ways? (laughs) I don't know. Studs is never the brightest bulb in the drawer, but sometimes he seems particularly ill-informed on a whole lot of things, and this is definitely one of those instances. But the music is, this is where the score kind of starts to get into this big and dramatic, almost more melodramatic mode, and some of it works pretty well, and some of it I feel like is Goldsmith just straining just a little bit to try and bring a weight to this material that isn't quite there. The the movie is not delivering because now we're focused on Studs' spiral and we don't care about Studs at all. So this is where, at least in the context of the film, the music feels increasingly strained and that Goldsmith is having to sell something we just can't buy. In the next cue to depression, we cut back
2: and forth between Catherine waiting in the rain for Studs to notice her and Studs talking with his father about the impact the depression will have on their business.
1: Basically, you're fired,
2: son. <laughs> I really like that there's, a, there's kind of a hectic and anxious five-note motif here when Catherine runs through the rain to get to the street. This is the street corner where they met again before they started dating, so she's kind of waiting for him there. And he is trying very, very hard for her not to spot him because he doesn't really want to deal with her at all.
1: Ugh, oh, his inner monologue here is one of the worst, where he's basically like contemplating just abandoning her there. The disdain he feels for her.
3: He doesn't feel anything for her at all, really. Not even a sense of just, like, obligation or responsibility. Never mind, you know, the feelings of affection. It's, ah, yet another thing in my life dragging me down.
2: But the score still seems sympathetic, though, because after the scene where Studs' father tells him that he'll be unemployed and on his own, we get a very heart-wrenching rendition of Studs' theme. That gets then abruptly cut off. It subsides very, very quickly to give way to dark, brooding underscore mm-hmm. for a Luddite's speech that Studs observes about progress. It's a very, very broody underscore.
3: Another bit that stood out to me, the very opening section of this cue, were either of you reminded of the Blue Max a little bit with those little trumpets, those da na 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 da na 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 bits, yeah, of a, a preview of some of the stuff he would do with that. And then we've got this scene with the priest, which seems to go on forever. You were drinking with Polly the night he
4: was killed. You were drinking with Weary the night he raped the girl. Has it ever occurred to you, William, that under the influence of alcohol, you could have been Weary or Polly? God spared you, William. And now you're afraid he won't spare you again.
3: It's a really long scene and seems to be working overtime trying to summarize this whole entire mess of a movie and studs Lonigan's mess of a life and bring a sense of purpose and meaning to it and basically tie everything together and send the audience home with something to think about here's the moral of the film
4: do you know what happened in the world today fortunes wiped out savings lost people full of grief because they've lost their money the real tragedy is that too many people feel about love as they do about money They think love is something you buy with gifts and presents, something you own. They do not realize that love is a giving of yourself, of sharing. They do not realize that the greatest single thing in this world is to love someone and to be loved.
1: It doesn't play that way to me, though. It feels like this is the priest's point of view and this is what he wants for studs but the way the ending of the film is acted even though i don't like his performance but he has such a dejected resigned quality at the end when he's like i have to love you
0: listen to me please you've got to listen to me
4: it's too late bill
0: yeah you still love me don't you
4: not anymore.
0: Yeah, you told Father Goholi you did.
4: Because I thought you were good. Someone who loved me. And love our baby. But I know you never will. Yes, I will. I gotta love you. I gotta love you. I gotta
0: love. You. I gotta love you.
1: He's like trying to convince himself that he can have a future with her, but you don't get the sense that he actually does. You don't get the sense that this is a happy ending for him whatsoever. No matter what the priest said, no matter what sort of propping up of you can be a good person or or whatever, it feels like a very downbeat ending still.
2: No, no, it struck me as very much the priest telling us this is the lesson. You can't treat love in that callous way, and you have to be a
1: responsible adult. But if it's a lesson, it's not a lesson learned. I don't think he's absorbed it. I'm not even convinced that he's going to stay with her. He's not saying, I love
3: you. He's saying, I have to love you. I don't see it as definitively downbeat as you suggest, Yuvar, but it does seem certainly uncertain about what's going to happen. We know what he's going to try to do based on what the priest tells him. And we know that he has failed pretty regularly in the past at almost everything he's tried to do. But with the movie choosing to leave it at that point, and after it goes to such effort to deliver that great big long kind of moral of the story, I feel like they did want to at least leave some audience members feeling as if things were going to be okay.
1: With his final music cue, Jerry doesn't go in for that, though. Like, there's no little note of hope at the end or note of redemption. It's very much like a dissonant final ending. These
2: ominous little two-note brass motifs and a very sad version of the studs theme.
1: Yeah, these past couple cues, it's been a very downtrodden and downbeat form of Stud's theme. He's, which is why this cue is called "Destitute Man," <laughs> right? It's full of despair. I don't think Goldsmith has the point of view that this is in any way a redemptive ending.
3: No, you're right. Going purely by the music and what Jerry Goldsmith is telling us, this is a tragic ending.
2: Right, but you also have to take into account, though, Erwin Lerner's comments. This is something that he was quoted saying is that by ending the movie on the marriage and not Studs' death, hey, I gave it a happier ending. That's literally his words. Yeah. Which apparently Farrell was not happy about because Farrell was very adamant that the story of Studs has to be framed by his death. But yeah, definitely we you know that um Lerner thought this was a happy ending anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, Jerry didn't get the memo.
2: No. Jerry is going to react to a movie the way that he reacts as an audience. That's always been his process.
1: If you're just listening to the score on album, nobody would think that this movie has a happy ending from just hearing the music.
2: Before I saw this movie, from the title "Destitute Man" and the tone of the cue, I didn't realize this was about a relationship. I just thought it was like,
3: oh, he's it's he's out of work. He's like a homeless guy on the street or something, right? Especially with it immediately following the Depression, you know. Exactly. Yeah,
1: I, I always assumed he died at the end of the movie. Like, I thought the descent in this queue was like, you know, him stumbling around on the street, destitute, and like the end shock cord is him just collapsing or something. That's what I always sort of imagined. But he's collapsing emotionally. He's dying inside, at least. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: again, this is all arguable since it is presented rather ambiguously.
3: Yet more speculation in a show just jam-packed with it.
2: Anyway, our Great Depression is over, <laughs> and we're ready to give out some contact information. Good one.
1: All right, well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Goldsmith Odyssey more than we enjoyed Studs Again, In fact, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed the score. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, if you would like to give us some feedback, share your thoughts on the score or film yourself, please contact us at mail at and if you have a positive review you'd like to give us, we would welcome you to do so uh, on iTunes, and that'll help our outreach to other curious podcast listeners scrolling through.
3: Yes, please don't be as honest with iTunes as we were about Studs Lonigan.
1: <laughs> you feel free to do that by email.
3: Right, right, right. Chastise us by email and flatter us on iTunes. So... Join us next time on the Goldsmith Odyssey when we'll be returning to the Wild West and two episodes that Goldsmith scored for the television series Have Gun, Will Travel and a single cue that he wrote for the Elvis Presley Western Flaming Star. And did either of you notice the very ending of this cue, this big kind of crashing conclusion? uh, The notes here that this score closes with are basically the same notes that the sand pebbles open with. Huh. I went and checked it against that recording just to be sure. And yeah, it's pretty much the same thing, which I thought was interesting. Very interesting.